the Georgia Bulldogs dethrone Alabama to claim their first national championship since 1980 in a thrilling game that featured both offense and defense. I'll give a quick recap of the college football season, plus a look ahead to Season 7 of AFR. It's all next. I'm Jay Smith, and this is After Further Review. And now, after further review, a Clemson student's perspective on sports. And a personal foul on number 99 of the defense. After he tackled the quarterback, he's giving them business down there. That's a 15-yard penalty. Well, welcome in, everyone, to another edition of After Further Review. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Jay Smith, and we are finally here at the Season 7 finale of AFR National Championship uh, game is in the books between Georgia and Alabama. The Bulldogs emerge victorious, and I, I gotta be honest, I don't normally toot my own horn, but that is a prediction I called back in August in the season opener between Clemson and Georgia. I stood in Bank of America Stadium, and I looked at some Georgia fans after that game was over, and I said, y'all are going to win the national championship. The Bulldogs are going to win the national championship. And they were able to do so. They emerged victorious over Alabama in a thrilling game. Uh, there were some people on social media that were saying the game was boring and it was a snooze fest. I don't know what they were watching because I was watching an exciting, classic SEC football game. A game that is one in the trenches between two physical football teams. Yes, it had been a lopsided rivalry, right? Georgia had not overcome Alabama since 2008, but still, it was always a physical matchup between these two teams. Georgia was caught sleeping 38 days ago in that SEC championship game, and they understood the opportunity that they had to redeem themselves, not in a different season, not 11 months from now, but a month and a few days later, in the, in the biggest game of them all, the national championship game, the biggest stage in college football, and they were granted that opportunity, and they didn't let it go to waste. So again, Georgia Bulldogs and their fans, my goodness, their fans, they should, uh, it's got to be a mixture of both relief, joy, exuberance. I mean, what a way to cap off a season for Georgia. 14-1 record, that's the most wins in school history for the Bulldogs, and it was an emphatic period on the end of a great season, a great way to win, obviously going out on top, and you got to, you know, root for guys like Stetson Bennett, a guy that's a a walk-on, right? He's not highly touted coming out of high school. He's not getting offers from Power 5 schools. In fact, he didn't get any offers from from any Power 5 schools. The guy walks on at Georgia transfers to a junior college, gets back at Georgia, and then becomes the starter after JT Daniels goes out with an injury earlier this season. And Stetson Bennett leads the Georgia Bulldogs to not only their best record in school history with 14 wins, but their first national championship since 1980, the Herschel Walker era of Georgia football. It's been 41 years, and honestly... 
when you think about Georgia football, when you think about their fans and just the program and how passionate they are, and I know plenty of Georgia fans, again, being a Clemson guy, being from South Carolina, and it's a bordering state, Athens not that far from South Carolina. There, I know plenty of Georgia Bulldog fans, plenty of people that bleed red and black, and it was painful for them for a long, long time, again, to be as passionate a fan base and to have not gotten it done on the biggest stage. You know, I saw a little bit firsthand at Clemson. Clemson had not won a title until their first of two of these, these past few years. It had been since 1981, right? It had been 1981 since Clemson had won a title. They were able to get it done in 2016 and 2018, but it was the same kind of frustration that the fan base felt, you know, with regards to becoming you know, a, a, a higher tiered level program sort of getting into the upper echelon of college football royalty. And I think this does a lot for Georgia, certainly. Uh, you know, again, you have to win the big games, right? If, if you're uh, a, a program and a team and a fan base that want to be taken seriously on the national stage, you've got to get it done on the, on the biggest stage. And that's why programs like Michigan and Notre Dame and Miami and USC and Nebraska and Tennessee and Penn State to a lesser degree. But those kinds of schools, right, have sort of fallen to the wayside and are no longer in that Florida State, right? You know, they're no longer in that blue blood category that people talk about year in, year out, because it's been so long. It's been so long since they have competed at the highest level and one again it's one thing to make a championship game many teams make championship games but there's only one team that emerges the winner and that may sound like an obvious statement of fact but the reality is is winning that game for Georgia is going to do so much for their program just look at other schools like Clemson who you know have won a championship recently and yes, Clemson was, was already ascending prior to their championship in 2016, right? They had made it in 2015. They had faced Alabama in round one, came up short, got back to the championship game a second year, was able to dethrone the Tide. Georgia's situation sort of similar. They made the championship in 2017, lost it in overtime, argued, arguably should have won that game, uh, or, or at least uh, have been able to uh, perform a little bit better down the stretch, and they get this opportunity. They get this opportunity this season. You know, come up short in the SEC championship game. People think, oh, they're 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 not gonna you know compete well against Michigan. They show up and they blow out the Wolverines. Took a lot of people like myself off guard. I was expecting Georgia to show up a little flat. They came out. They were more physical than Michigan for 60 full minutes. And the Bulldogs advanced to a national championship game where they knew they'd have the opportunity to rematch with their nemesis. I mean, you could make the argument that that, uh, that, that opponent in Alabama was really just a cathartic experience for Georgia and just releasing all of that emotion that they had had pent up, not just since the SEC championship game, not just since the 2017 national championship game, not just since 2008, the last win for Georgia over Alabama, but since 1980, 41 years 
of frustration, pent up energy that that team, coaching staff, players, you know, fan base, everybody associated with the Bulldogs program had to endure. And that and that release when you finally win is almost indescribable. And it's really best appreciated by people who have been there for the entire stretch. People who have seen the ups and the downs. You know, Georgia ha- hasn't always been at or near the top of college football, right? Yes, they had a good run in the 80s, just like Clemson had a great run in the 80s, but there were some years where the dogs were down and things didn't look good. And Mark Rick, before Kirby Smart, he had a lot of consistency at Georgia. But at the same time, you know, Georgia fans were hungry. They were hungry for a championship, and they wanted to, you know, get back to where they knew they could be. And an opportunity to prove that they were worthy. I think the lasting image out of this championship game, and honestly, out of this season for me, the 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 the, the most um, emotional image out of this year for me is the picture that was circulating social media that shows after the championship game that shows Kirby Smart, the current Georgia head coach embracing Vince Dooley, the former Georgia head coach, who was the last head coach to lead the Georgia Bulldogs to a national championship. That is the enduring image of this season of college football. Because Vince Dooley, a man who is 89 years old, who still traveled to Indianapolis, wanted to root his dogs on and and see them compete in the big game, he understood better than anybody the emotional toll waiting 41 years has had. Not just on him himself personally or former players like Herschel Walker, but fans, right? Just Bulldog fans, Bulldog Nation. They have waited so long. And, you know, I, I had conversations with several people who said, oh, I, you know, I, I know so many Georgia fans and they're going to be so obnoxious about it now. And, you know, I just don't want to deal with that. So I'd rather Alabama win because they always win. And I, 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 I really, I don't agree with that sentiment at all. And, and the, the main reason that I disagree with that is because I feel like it's, it's good for college football. It's good for college football when you have teams, you know, mix up who's winning the national championship every year, right? You, you need to have some variety, and you need to have teams like Cincinnati get an opportunity to play on the Big Six. Look at, uh, yes, Cincinnati was not close to competing in that game against Alabama. Thoroughly outmatched. But look at how important it was to Cincinnati. That is what makes college football so unique and so beloved among just football fans and sports fans compared to other sports like professional sports where you're not seeing that same just emotion that's poured out, um, uh, you know, on the, on the same level. So I, I really, I feel like having teams make the playoff, you know, a group of five team like Cincinnati, having Georgia win our first national championship since 1980. I mean, you saw the same kind of emotional release when Clemson won, right, in 2016, because not only had they made the championship the year prior, come up short, but they had been trying 
since 1981 to win another national championship in football. And for those fan bases that are so rabid for that success, you know, in Clemson and Georgia and so many others around the country, I, I think it's it's good for college football when you have a variety of champions. So, I, again, I, you know, yes, there's there are going to be some obnoxious Georgia fans. There are obnoxious fans in every for every team in the country. That I mean, that is just a part of sports and, and fandom, and, and you just have to deal with that. And listen, if anybody gives me crap about anything, I'm just going to say and be completely honest and say, listen, I was at the Clemson-Georgia game in Bank of America at the season opener, and I looked at all these Georgia fans around me, and I said, y'all are going to win the national championship. You have a team good enough to win the national championship. You will get past Bama, and you will win the national championship. Because... You know, that's what I saw on the field that night. And I felt like that Georgia had done enough in that season opener to convince me that this is a Bulldog team that's for real and that can compete and win the biggest game on the biggest stage. So, you know, some people will have their opinions about whether or not this is a good thing or, or, or oh, it's going to be hard to endure and I just don't like Georgia fans. I, you know, again, you've got plenty of fans for any for every team that behave um, in that way, and, and it's just part of college football. But I, I really think it's best when you have teams um, that get opportunities to come to the big dance or get into the playoff or, or whatever, because it just it shows how meaningful those opportunities are to those programs that that aren't in it every year. And Alabama, you know, they're they've been in it now uh, more than anybody. They they've surpassed Clemson. Um, this this year with their seventh college football playoff appearance, uh, Clemson at, at six and Alabama now at seven. Uh, so Alabama leads all schools with in terms of college football playoff appearances. But you know, again, Cincinnati had an opportunity. They're a first time CFP uh, team. Michigan had had an opportunity. They're a first time CFP team. And, and yes, they came up short. Both Cincinnati and Michigan came up short. We've talked a lot about those games on previous shows. Not going to break them down again here. But I think it's still good for the sport to have a little bit of variety and some mix-up um, when it comes to, to who's making the playoff and, and who's in the hunt for a championship. So, again, biggest thing for me out of this you know, post-game and, and the celebration is the picture of Kirby Smart embracing Vince Dooley um, with confetti raining down on them and, and, and you know, the crowd roaring and everything. And you can imagine the chaos of that moment, right? I mean, that the picture... It looks very calm and serene, but in reality, I can only imagine, and as someone who has been on the field um, post-college football playoff games for a winning team, the emotion and the just the chaotic energy of that moment, it almost makes time slow down because you just want to soak it all in. And so I, I really... Um, I really love that image, and it's certainly one that I think will endure well past this college football playoff season or even us talking about Georgia's national championship. You'll, you will see that image of Kirby Smart and Vince Dooley plastered on the wall in the Georgia football facility for decades to come. It was really heartwarming to see. In terms of the actual game, because we, we will talk about the actual game now, I just wanted to sort of recap my thoughts on what this win meant for Georgia and their national championship. 
I thought this was a great game. I thought this was a fantastic game for a full 60 minutes. Some people on social media disagree. There were a lot of people on Twitter chirping about how boring it was and it's a snooze fest and SZC, I mean, all this sort of stuff. I, again, I didn't really, I, I didn't agree with any of that because this game started as a defensive slugfest. It was a slobber knocker, right? Defensive battle in the trenches. And, and it went back to keys to the game that, that we talked about on the previous episode. If you've listened to that show, you will probably remember the keys to the game I listed for Georgia. It was pressure Bryce Young, allow Bennett to stay comfortable and play with tempo. Now, Bennett, in the beginning, he was not comfortable. I mean, he he looked worse than... Uh, you know, a squirrel trying to cross an eight-lane interstate. This guy literally scrambled on second down, the second play of offense for Georgia, and fumbled the football himself. Like, he just dropped the ball. So Bennett was, like, terrified. He looked absolutely out of sorts. It took him a while to get comfortable, but once he settled in, especially midway through the third quarter and on, he was lights out, and he proved to everyone why he deserved to be the starter for Georgia in the championship game. For Alabama, the keys to the game were limit Georgia's running game, run, run, run yourself, and then keep Young upright. Now, Georgia got a lot of pressure on Young. They made him uncomfortable. They made him have to roll out. He had to scramble. I understand Alabama was without their two leading receivers for the majority of this game, right? Man, she was out for the entire game, and then you lose your other key receiver, was that like midway? It was either around halfway through the first quarter or towards the end of the first quarter, I believe. And, you know, that certainly had an impact. That certainly had an impact on Alabama's offense and their capabilities. But, again, you know, when you look at overall performance and in the trenches, Georgia dominated at the line of scrimmage. That is something they did not do in the SEC championship game. Right? They, they had a lot of issues uh, you know, winning the line of scrimmage battle in that SEC championship game, but I was really impressed. Uh, I was really impressed with their performance in this game. Yes, you know there were times where Alabama won uh, the line of scrimmage, but one of the key things when I went back and watched the SEC championship game was how Alabama won a lot of one-on-one matchups against Georgia, whether that was a one-on-one matchup between a wide receiver and secondary, a one-on-one between you know running back and a linebacker, or, or whatever the case was, Alabama was winning those one-on-ones, which to- totaled a-, a bunch of losses, right, for Georgia, because when you lose multiple one-on-ones on the same play, you're going to get beat, and, and you're going to get beat badly. Georgia limited their mistakes uh, in-, in the trenches and in one-on-one matchups for most of this game. We saw Georgia's secondary play a lot better in this game. They did get behind the line of scrimmage a lot. Georgia's offense in that first half was starting first and 15, second and 20. I mean, they never really had a manageable third down. I think their average line line to gain or yards to gain on third down in the first half was 9 or 10, which is not good at all. Um, but they were able to keep themselves in the game uh, with their defense, it was a lot of field goals. It was a field goal-heavy first half, right? Nine to six at halftime. And again, the fact 
that Jameson Williams for Alabama had to go out with that knee injury in yeah it was in the the first half you know certainly played a role in what Alabama could do offensively it it, it absolutely did and it should be mentioned but again I think you have to credit Georgia's defense they showed up they were physical they attacked the football that's something they did not do very well in the SEC championship game open field tackles killed Georgia in Atlanta they were able to lock it down in Indianapolis. So those those were certainly some differences I saw between the SEC championship game and this national championship uh, game in, in, in Indianapolis. Um, but again, the first half I thought was really entertaining. You know, it was, it was a close defensive battle. We went into the locker room pretty... It felt like neither team really had an edge. It didn't feel like, oh... You know, Alabama has really been dominating, but it's still a close score. No, it felt like these were two heavyweight fighters slugging it out in the first half. And there were some bruises and there were some bops, but we, we still had plenty of football left to be played. Like, the, you knew going into the locker room that it was going to probably come down to the final five minutes of football. It really was It was that type of, of vibe that I was getting uh, at, at the half. And, you know, Georgia came out into that third quarter and they tried to to do, I think, uh, you know, a, a little bit different uh, things on offense. They tried to mix it up a little bit on offense. They threw a lot more in the second half than they did in the first half. And I don't think that was a desperation move by Georgia. I just think they understood that, okay, you know, we're, we're not doing a lot on the ground. Um, so we need to either, uh, you know, give Bennett an opportunity to throw the deep ball, which again, they didn't have a throw over 20 yards in the first half, you know, and, and Bennett ended up only throwing for 224 yards. Uh, he was 17 of 26 for 224, two touchdowns. So it was a, it was a you know, a game manager type of performance. Remember how we talked about on the most recent episode, the championship preview episode, Stetson Bennett is a game manager, okay? He's, he is a dynamic guy. He can scramble if he needs to, but he is really there to limit mistakes, manage the game. It took him a while to get settled in, certainly. So I honestly, honestly thinking about it now in real time, if I'm Georgia's coaching staff and I'm the old coordinator, I probably don't want Stetson Bennett throwing the deep ball in the first half because of how jittery he looked. So I will never know, but I do wonder if Georgia's play calling was so conservative in the first half because they felt or they weren't confident, right? They did not have any confidence in Stetson Bennett because he was so jittery. That's that's honestly something I hadn't considered until now. It certainly could have played a factor. Uh, for Alabama, it was really more of the same. They, they tried to run a little bit more in that third quarter, but they didn't have as much success on offense. Georgia's defense really stepped up in the third quarter, shut Alabama out. And so we went into the fourth with a 13-9 ball game. And it was sort of this feeling that Alabama was going to find a way to score a touchdown. And we'll, we'll talk about the fumble, out of bounds, caught it, but he was in bounds, play in a little bit. But but Alabama, it felt like they were going to score a touchdown and Georgia was going to need to probably get another touchdown in order to, you know, it felt like, oh, okay, you know, we're, we're, we're 13 to 9, 20 points would certainly make Georgia feel very comfortable. Um, Alabama, you know, 
touchdown, maybe a field goal. We'll have to see. Um, and they came out, Alabama did, in the, early in that fourth quarter, right? Ten plays, 72 yards. They ended up kicking a field goal. And so it was a one-point game in favor of Georgia. And then what happened next will thankfully not be remembered for altering the outcome of that game, but it certainly felt like it was going to. You know, if you're listening to this podcast, you have seen that play. My personal opinion is that the ball was going forward, and there had been another call earlier in that game where, if you remember right, it was the first drive for Alabama. Bryce Young was throwing it away while being sacked. The ball sort of kind of, like, it went forward more obviously than in George's case, but he just kind of threw it at the ground, and it was very, like, just, there was no oomph behind it at all. And they, you know, they, uh, Georgia scooped it up, right? Scooped it up, ran it back. They called it a touchdown. They did a review. They said, no, it's an incomplete pass. He was moving the ball forward when he released it, and it got overturned. This play, they did the same type of call, right? For, for, for the Georgia fumble, they did the same type of call. They, 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 they said it was a fumble, and they said it was under review. But when you watch the replay, the ball, and he's sort of, you know, He's trying to get rid of it, obviously, and he's being sacked at the same time, and his hand goes up vertically, and I think that's the big difference. I'm not a replay official, but if I had to guess why that call stood, it wasn't confirmed, right? It was not confirmed. The call stands. That was how it was phrased, which basically means we don't have the evidence to confirm it. We don't have the evidence to overturn it, so we're just going to leave it as what was called on the field. My theory on this is, for Alabama and Bryce Young, the arm was moving horizontally, right? It was moving more more horizontal, left to right. Stetson Bennett's arm was a little more vertical. It was a little more up and down. And because it was more up and down, it wasn't as obvious that the arm and thus the ball were moving forward at the point of release, I still feel like it should have been an incomplete pass. I think there was enough evidence there. ESPN provided enough looks to overturn what was called on the field. Now, as far as the fumble recovery, I have no issue with that at all. That was a legitimate fumble recovery. It was extremely close, extremely close. But I think he got his foot down in bounds, and I think that should count as a fumble recovery if they're going to call that a fumble. I disagree with the call of it being a fumble. Um... And, you know, again, when you make the overturn call earlier in the game and then you don't overturn a similar call later in the game, both with implications of a turnover, right? Because Georgia ended up scoring a touchdown. They scooped it and ran it back for a touchdown. So it would have been a touchdown if the call had stood. Alabama obviously scored a touchdown a few plays later. So that right there is two defensive touchdowns, essentially, um, in that game, one was negated, one was allowed, and it wasn't a scooping score for Alabama, but they scored on that drive, right? Four plays, 16 yards. They, didn't, they were already in the red zone, so they didn't have to go that far. And I, again, I, I am very, the, the, my biggest takeaway from all of this, because I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this particular play, 
because thankfully it did not it did not influence the outcome of the game. It, it played no impact. In fact, it would have ended up being what thirty three to twelve. Yeah, it would have been a thirty three to twelve beatdown of Alabama, twenty one point win without that touchdown after that fumble. Now, you could argue that Georgia would not have been nearly as aggressive at, on offense because it would have been a 13-12 to 12 game, and, and the odds of Georgia scoring 20 points in the fourth quarter if they had been leading is, is slim, certainly slim, because the pick six at the end would likely not have happened. But again, that that's, again, I digress, right? That's all... Um, that's just, that's just, we're all just theorizing at that point. Um, fantasy. You know, the, the, fact, the fact remains that I think this call was the wrong call on the field. It should have been overturned, but thankfully it had no direct impact on the outcome of the game. Uh, with that being said, with that being said, I am extremely impressed. And probably the biggest thing I saw, the most impressive thing I saw to Stetson Bennett in the national championship game was how he responded to that turnover. Because there are so many other quarterbacks, so many other players that would have allowed that turnover to just deflate them. And it would have felt over and oh my gosh, how did I do that? The, you know, I should have I should have just gone down or I should have this and, and then you begin to play the what if game in your head and it takes you to a bad place mentally and you're not able to perform at the high level to close out the game. Because again, that fumble happened with about 11, 11 and a half minutes to go in regulation. So you're only going to get maybe two more possessions. So Bennett had to, had to know that we basically need to score when we touch the ball from here on out. If it's not three, it needs to be six. And the way he responded to that turnover and subsequent touchdown is that that is the, you know, lasting takeaway I, I will have about Stetson Bennett in the national championship game against Alabama. He rallied his troops. He said, no, we are going to go score, and we're going to do it fast. And they went four plays, 75 yards in two minutes to take the lead. Two-point conversion failed, but they were still up on Alabama, 19-18, and they didn't look back. They did not look back. So, the argument could be made that the fumble, the, the ruling being called a fumble, might have actually motivated Bennett to that just lights-out fourth-quarter performance. And, and that's what Dick Saban told Kirby Smart while they were shaking hands after the game, right at midfield. He said, y'all kicked our ass in the fourth quarter. I mean, and they did. Georgia absolutely steamrolled Alabama in that fourth quarter. And you know what? It was from the turnover on. It was from the turnover on. Georgia turns it over, Alabama scores, and Georgia says, okay, all right, we'll take care of business now. They go four plays, 75 yards. They put together another touchdown drive, seven plays, 62 yards in three and a half minutes. And then the nail in the coffin, even though the game was pretty much over at that point, but the nail in the coffin came with the uh, pick six, the 79-yard pick six by Keeley Ringo, which is the longest pick six in championship game history for a final score of 33-18. It's, it's not quite 
Not quite the uh, 21-point win for the um, the rematch. So if if you're not aware, there was a statistic um, that I have uh, that I cited a lot because I felt like it was a good indicator of who was going to win. And this was the fifth all time. This was the fifth rematch between top five teams in the same season. In in all the previous four, the loser of the original game won the rematch by 21 or more. By 21 or more. The trend continues. The trend continues. Georgia beating Alabama. However, this win was not by 21 or more. It was by 15, which is the second largest loss by Alabama under Nick Saban. You know who the largest loss was? That's right, it was Clemson, 44-16 in the 2018 National Championship. So Saban uh, certainly did not have the fourth quarter that his you know, he wanted, his team wanted, but he acknowledged, and, and, and again, Saban's a class act. Saban, uh, you know, what? no matter what you think of Alabama, you have to respect Nick Saban, you have to respect his process, you have to respect his achievements and accomplishments on the field. And, you know, he gave credit to Kirby, again, at midfield after that game, saying, listen, y'all kicked our ass in the fourth quarter, played a heck of a game, congratulations. And I think he was genuinely happy to see Kirby Smart uh, hoist the the golden scepter for the Georgia Bulldogs. And, again, the school's first national championship since 1980. Um, what a game, what a game, what a college football season. Uh, it was a great year and was, again, just super fortunate to be able to watch so many games and, um, you know, go to a couple, obviously the Clemson-Georgia game um, at the beginning of the season. Didn't go Clemson's way, you know, much to my chagrin, but it was still an amazing atmosphere and there's just nothing like a, a college football game. I've been to, uh, I was able to go to a college football game, um, in Bank of America and a professional football game in Bank of America this year, and the, the college football atmosphere just just destroys the the NFL atmosphere. Just nothing comes close to a a big time college football game, and, and that was something that even Kurt Herbstreit was talking about, right? He said that on the broadcast. He's like, I don't think I've ever felt this kind of energy in the pregame for a championship game. It is just electric in here, and you could tell both of those schools. You know, wanted to win it for different reasons and wanted to emerge victorious. Um, so it was a great game. Again, congrats to Georgia and uh, a 14-1 and record to cap off their season. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the final AP poll, uh, some teams that snuck in, where teams landed, and then we will be previewing se- Season 7 of AFR, what to expect when that will all release That's next. Stick around. Welcome back to After Further Review. This is it. This is the last segment of the last show of Season 6 of AFR. You've almost made it to the end. Let's go ahead and tie the bow on this college football season. The final AP poll came out. Uh, It was released earlier today. And, well, I guess depending on when you listen to the podcast, but it was released, has been released and uh, no, no real surprise near the top. You got Georgia, Alabama, Michigan, Cincinnati. Your top five, though, includes Baylor. A lot of people complaining about Ohio State. 
being at six, I see no reason to put the Buckeyes above Baylor or Cincinnati or Michigan, so I think that's that's a fair ranking for Ohio State. Oklahoma State at seven, Notre Dame eight, Michigan State nine, and then Oklahoma rounds out the top ten. Uh, again, you know, not, not anything too controversial there for me. I think, you know, all of those rankings are pretty fair. Old Miss dropped three spots after their Sugar Bowl loss to Baylor, so they, they are 11th. Utah, 12th. Pitt is 13th. Clemson, the Tigers, who actually, this is a fun fact for you, guess who has the longest active winning streak in the Power Five right now? It's Clemson. Clemson. The Clemson Tigers, they won eight of their last nine, and the Tigers, you know, they, they looked impressive in their Cheez-It Bowl win over Iowa State, but yeah, their six-game winning streak, their six-game winning streak is the longest active streak in the Power Five. Again, the Tigers get their 11th straight 10-win season. They're only the third school to ever accomplish that feat, Alabama, Florida State, the other two. Remarkable consistency out of Clemson. The Tigers sneak in the top 15. They finish 14th in the AP poll. Wake Forest, the Demon Deacons, finish 15th. Uh, it's a big, big deal for Wake Forest finishing in the top 15 in the AP poll. Louisiana, the Raging Cajuns at 16. Houston at 17. Kentucky, 18, BYU at 19, and NC State rounds out the top 20. Not sure why NC State deserved to drop two spots after their bowl game with UCLA. The Holiday Bowl was canceled. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me, but the, regardless, the Wolfpack end the year with a top 20 ranking. Arkansas at 21, Oregon 22, Iowa 23, Utah State 24, and finally, San Diego State rounding out the top 25. Um, a few things of note. Obviously, uh, Georgia finishes this year as the only team uh, to win 14 games, 14-1 and record for the Bulldogs. We had two teams reach 13 wins, Alabama and Cincinnati respectively. And honestly, we didn't have many schools at all reach 12 wins. In fact, we only had three. Michigan, Baylor, and Oklahoma State are the three schools that won 12 or more. So you see how difficult it is to win 10 games or more. I mean, yes, there's a lot of schools that hit that 11 win mark, and then obviously a bunch that hit uh, 10. Oh, excuse me. I missed Louisiana. I missed Louisiana. The Raging Cajuns got 13 wins, and actually Houston recorded a 12-win season. They were just a little bit lower in the AP poll rankings, so I missed them. So we had 14-1 and one Georgia. We had two, three schools, three schools at 13 wins, Alabama, Cincinnati, and Louisiana. And then we had four schools with 12 wins. We had Michigan, Baylor, Oklahoma State, and Houston. Two nine-win teams, two nine-win teams, Finished in the top 25, NC State at 29-3, Arkansas 21, uh, they were 9-4. But uh, yeah, four losses is the most that we saw at anybody in the top 25. The highest ranked four-loss team, Utah. Utah finished 10-4, ranked 12th. That's, that's honestly not bad at all for a four-loss football team. 
The next four-loss football team is Oregon down at 22nd. So that's a really high ranking for the Utah Utes. Um, but again, nothing really controversial uh, that sticks out to me uh, with this AP poll. Um, you know, again, we don't we don't have a final college football playoff poll. The, for some reason, the committee does not release a final poll uh, after the championship game. So this is all we got. This is all we have until the way too early uh, top 25s that'll get released uh, probably next week, I'd imagine, if they haven't already been released. Um, so we'll, you know, certainly have a lot to talk about in the off season, and and this, you know, as we wrap up this college football season, look ahead. We're going into our seventh season of After Further Review. I've got a lot of things planned for the show. We're probably going to do a little bit of a different format going forward. Um, so depending on where you consume the show, if you listen to the show as a podcast, it's obviously just audio only, right? We're available on eight, nine different podcast platforms. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can follow AFR, download the episodes, take them on the go. But we also post the full-length episode on Facebook, and that includes video. That includes a video component. I'm standing here, or sitting here, rather, looking into the camera um, that I use for those Facebook videos. Going forward into Season 7, what we're likely going to do is just the, the main show, the main episodes will be podcast only, and then certain you know, snippets or stuff that we, you know, I want to clip for social media, whether that's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, those will contain video elements where I'm talking uh, on camera, just thinking that's the best way going forward. Honestly, not being able to access um, school caliber Wi-Fi, like campus Wi-Fi or internet, has really slowed the uploading um, speeds. Uh, you know, the apartment that I have here has got good Wi-Fi, and I'm able to get episodes uploaded pretty uh, pain-free, but it, it, when I tell you that it takes probably 10 times longer to upload the video episode rather than the podcast episode, that's not a stretch. It, it takes nearly an hour and a half sometimes to get uh, a video uploaded to Facebook where I can have the podcast uploaded in 5 or 10 minutes. Um, so I think we're going to do podcast only for the main episodes, and then again, we'll incorporate video with different things on social, which that seems to perform well when we post stuff there. But I'm reaching out to some people about incorporating some new segments into the show, and hopefully they'll become recurring segments, maybe do a little sports betting uh, segment, and you know, possibly do um, some, some other things that are still in the works, still reaching out to some different sponsors um, that we may try and have for, for next season. Uh, as far as the timeline on when Season 8 of AFR will premiere, don't have an exact date yet, but it will be soon. Um, again, with, with this being the time of year with my work and, and everything getting going with, with NASCAR, um, it's going to be really, really busy for me, and so I'm not sure that I'll have a ton of time to dedicate um, in the next you know month or two but I'm going to try to get everything ironed out and, and uploaded here fairly soon and, and keep everybody updated on when Season 8 will come up because we will certainly be doing content through the off-season. Um, but again, I'll, I'll have a, a post uh, here pretty soon where I'll sort of overview everything and, and preview everything for next season. Um, so again, if you're enjoying the content, whether it's 
as a podcast or if it's on Facebook, be sure to, to hey, leave a review, maybe drop a like, throw a share my way. Um, whatever you do, it, it helps push the show out to more people. And again, the listenership on the podcast side has really taken off this year, which has been awesome. So going to continue to um, to go that route and continue to try and grow the show that way. It has been fun talking college football. We have done so many uh, episodes this this season. I think this is probably this season six has got more episodes than any other season of AFR that I've ever done. Um, there's just been so much to talk about, and I've really prioritized trying to get these out on a consistent basis and just being consistent, and it's, it's paid off. Um, and, and I've really enjoyed you know, posting these and, and sitting down you know, once, twice a week to record these and, and talk about college football, and it's been awesome to know there's a listener base out there and engage with some people on social media and have a fun time that way. But yeah, 37 episodes, 37 episodes of, of AFR. And just for context, I remember the first two seasons combined were I think 47 or 48 episodes. The first season was 20 episodes. Um, so the fact that I was able to cram 37 episodes in um, is just awesome. And again, it, it would not, this would not be something I would do if there wasn't the listener base and, and the people that are out there listening and supporting the show and engaging on social because that makes all of this worth doing and, and, and still fun and enjoyable. So I do appreciate everybody that listens, that comments on the show, that you know drops thoughts on the show. It's, it's, it's always very much appreciated. And uh, like I said, a lot of exciting stuff coming for season um, seven uh, of After Further Review. I'll have some announcements on social here fairly soon. Until then, everybody, enjoy the college football offseason. Hey, tune into some NFL games if that's your thing. If not, we'll see you back here for Season 7 of After Further Review. Appreciate you tuning in. Have a good one.